Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from AbbVie through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 4. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from doctors outside your own centre, and this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from experts across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. This season, we're mixing it up a little bit with a series of cross-specialty conversations, and today we're tackling rheumatology. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Cam Shajania. He's a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia. He's also the Chief of Rheumatology at the Vancouver General Hospital and Medical Director of the Mary Pack Arthritis Program. Oh, and he works with our colleague, dermatologist Dr. Sheila Au, in the Dermatology and Rheumatology, or DART Clinic, at St. Paul's Hospital. Dr. Shojania, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. I am absolutely thrilled to be talking about rheumatology because of all of the cross-specialties, I feel... Like one of the things that I spend most of my clinical practice um, sharing is with rheumatologic patients. So I think this is a great opportunity for us to talk a little bit about how we uh, co-manage patients and how we do it in similar and different ways. Perfect. Awesome. I'd like to say that you had Dr. Jan Dutz um, a couple of years ago and uh, Sheila and I'd like to say me plus Sheila equals Jan because Jan's <laughs> and a dermatologist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We did have Dr. Dutz join us, and he is one of those rare uh, dual certified room derms. There's many times I wish I could tap into his brain and just transplant it in during my clinical time. Um, so listen, here's what I was thinking. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we could cover, and we could probably honestly just talk for hours about derm and room. But I was thinking maybe a little bit about psoriatic arthritis, psoriatic disease, Um, maybe a little bit about scleroderma because the residents had a few questions around that. And then maybe we can touch on some of the stuff that we covered with Dr. Dutz, but from a different angle. And that would be more of the lupus dermatomyositis spectrum. Perfect. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. So one of the things that we encounter frequently is the patient with psoriasis that comes to us first. And One of the things I like to talk to my room colleagues about, and I'm really interested in what your clinical approach and tips would be, are what do you think is appropriate for the derm to do when it comes to asking about joints or screening for joints? Like, where should we be going on the PSA screening side? First question. And then when do we send them to you? But let's split that up. Let's talk about the patient comes in, they got psoriasis. What do you think we should be asking? Well, I think you you think about a couple of things, not only just the uh, joints, but also the bowels, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, inflammatory bowel disease and eyes. So it almost makes sense for a new dermatologist to go uh, and have a form in their waiting room that they could ask these questions, because why should you take 
10 extra minutes and go through this review of systems when you can actually have the patient do it in the waiting room and mm-hmm. they can ask, do you have back pain? Do you have back pain that wakes you up at night? Does the back pain is, are you stiff in the morning in your back? Uh, do you have pain at the bottom of your feet? Do you have pain at the heels, right? That's enthesitis. Yes. Do you, you, you know, d- did you ever have a sausage toe or finger? You know, these are things that, you know, you could go through rote each time, or you could just have a form in your waiting room that, uh, or they do online before they come, like we do in my office. We have a form that they do online that answers their family history and their review of systems. That sounds like an awesome thing to have online. I work in a hospital that's currently stuck firmly in the 70s, and we only have paper. Do you, in the DART clinic, for example, use a version of this? Like, Do you pre-screen patients, or because they're seeing both of you guys, you don't even do that part? Um, Dr. Al pre-screens, triages the patients based on the, the information that comes from the dermatologist or the rheumatologist. So that's a different uh, type of... Uh, it's enriched. So okay. we... But in in... Other places, you can do a, have the patients do a form where it goes as a PDF that your MOA could just print for you, which is just as good. Yeah, that's a great, um, uh, that's a great piece of advice, actually. I think that would really improve efficiency. The one now, we use is th- called Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E. So it's a okay. Canadian company that does that for us. But yeah, I, but if you're going to ask, I would ask about... Because you could go down a rabbit hole with uh, bowels, for example. Mm-hmm. You could spend 15 minutes talking about the, you know, the quality of the bowel movement. Or you could uh, ask, you know, do you have mucus or blood in the bowels? Uh, you know, do you have episodic single eye inflammation? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have pain in the bottom of your feet? Um, that sort of thing. But I think if you start to get a positive review of systems for everything, you need to cut that short. Right, which is the benefit of having the form, I guess. And this is yeah. this is where sometimes, you know, it's the clinical visits are going to differ a bit because on average in dermatology, our visit length is much shorter um, than for many of our subspecialty colleagues that, uh, you know, in rheumatology or in gastroenterology. And so keeping that simple and efficient, I think, is super key. Because I'll tell you where I go down a rabbit hole with back pain, and I have to admit, um, you know, what percentage of patients that that have back pain truly have psoriatic or, you know, inflammatory back pain is such a tricky thing. Um, It's going to be much less than 5%. Okay. So, so this... Getting back to psoriatic arthritis, there Mm -hmm. are five types of psoriatic arthritis. Yeah. And um, and one of them is axial or back and spinal involvement. The other, the most common type is just uh, oligoarticular, oligo few. So mm-hmm. just a few joints, often knee or ankle or finger. Uh, you know, two or three joints that are swollen. Um, there's one called polyarticular, which is looks like rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one that's called mutilans arthritis mutilans, which is as bad as it sounds, is telescoping fingers, um, uh, very bad, uh, less common. And then there's one only involves the DIP joints, the tips of the fingers. And that one, you know, it's not osteoarthritis because it has terrible nail changes with that. Mm -hmm. Because the nail, wherever the nail grows out of is involved with the the DIP version. So I think I hit five types, oligo, poly, DIP, mutilans, axial. You did. And I'll say for the residents, that's a common uh, trivia question that your staff will like to ask and sometimes appears on the exam. So that's a good thing to remember. Um, So 
when we think about those patients that have, you know, and I think it's in particularly it's challenging with the axial disease to differentiate from spondyloarthropathies from other reasons, um, or again, the one that has that RA look, do you think there's a role for doing, or rather, do you think there's a role? Do you recommend that we do imaging in patients or should we leave that to you guys? I think leave that to us because imaging is changing now. For example, we don't do x-rays of the SI joints in our center anymore. Okay. We do a low-dose CT scan of the SI joints, which is the same radiation or even less, and it is a way better image. Right. Uh, so it's way better to tell. Less, uh, It's more sensitive and specific. Um, and uh, in a young person I, with uh, with new onset, I might get an MRI of the SI joints. Leave that to us. Okay. And um, the other differential for the oligoarticular psoriatic arthritis is osteoarthritis. So a 50-year-old with knee pain and psoriasis, for if you take by chance, it's going to be osteoarthritis and mm-hmm. psoriasis. So if you're a lumper, like internists, like we are, right. um, we're, we're more likely to say that's psoriatic arthritis. If you're a splitter, in that case, you should be. By the way, I think dermatologists are more splitters and, and rheumatologists are lumpers. If you're a splitter, you'll say that's separate, that's psoriasis and osteoarthritis. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I I like to be a splitter at times, but I think maybe my internal medicine background has uh, created the lumping tendency in me. So I can, I appreciate the, the lumpiness. Um, do you think there's any role, so thinking outside of the SI joints, for example, you see that patient, they have the knee or they have the fingers and you're looking at, you know, you think it could be Heberden's and Bouchard's, like is a plain x-ray film helpful to say this looks more like osteo or does that really not add much to your clinical decision? The problem is osteo is so common. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to say x-ray evidence of osteoarthritis in 50% of people at age 50, 50 at 50. Okay. So you can to have osteoarthritis, but still have psoriatic arthritis. So I like to look at new symptoms, uh, stiffness, asymmetric, um, uh, the severity of the joint symptoms. Uh, if it's if it's significant psoriatic arthritis, the patient usually will mention it if it's mm-hmm. active at that time. Um, so I ideally, if you think by your history, and by a curse, uh, cur- uh, very short physical examination that this is, and here's what I do uh, for physical. If you just want to hyperextend the MCP joints okay. of the patient, that shouldn't hurt if you do yourself. Okay. Hyperflex or extend the wrists. Okay. And I do a forefoot squeeze. Okay. If those are if those are not tender then you can stop for the peripheral exam. Okay. You don't have to go through every little joint detail. So that four finger, you know, all the 30 joint thing that we learned no. in medical school, we don't need to do that. No, you do Excellent. not need to do that. You stress the wrists, MCPs and MTPs in the feet. Okay. You can look at the hand and you can say, wow, that looks like a sausagey finger or a sausagey toe. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that may be helpful. Okay. But really stressing those joints is all you need to do. Okay. Now, what about the axial um, 
is that more like we see the symptoms go, yeah, yes. this seems pretty rheumatologic or this seems inflammatory and then, you know, pitch it to you guys or yes. is there any kind of, so no basic, you know, we're not bending the, the, no. the what's that one? Fabers. Is that a thing? I feel Schober. like that's a thing. Faber's hip and Schober is oh, the spine. Schober's never mind. Okay. Don't, don't quote me. Okay. Back One of to our you. spondylitis experts, rheumatologist, uh, was very controversial when he stood up in front of all of us and he said, the physical exam of the spine does not help you diagnose spondylitis. Okay. And we had a, we had a collective gasp and how could you say that? But, uh, but he was right. And you know, it's the physical exam does not help diagnose axial, um, disease well at all. Right. Now, the other thing, just while we're talking about axial disease and spondyloarthropathy, one of the confusing things I find is the differentiation between ankylosing spondylitis in a patient with psoriasis versus, you know, um, axial spondyloarthropathy related to psoriatic arthritis. And so are there diagnostic clues or is it actually probably all the same disease and we just call it different things? Well, my opinion, it's in the same spectrum of conditions. Okay. And we're calling it different things. Uh, some of the uh, rheumatologists and radiologists say that the the type of sacroiliitis and the way the syndesmophytes are are different. I don't buy that personally. Okay. <clears throat> but um, but if you think of three, a Venn diagram of four overlapping circles with each other, mm -hmm. and you put in each one of them, one is angst bond, one is psoriatic arthritis, one is IBD-related arthritis, and the last one is reactive arthritis, formerly called Reiter syndrome. Right. And you can be, uh, your patient can be in any one of those circles or all of those circles. They may have ankylosing spondylitis, and then they may have a little patch of psoriasis in their uh, gluteal cleft that they never knew about. Mm -hmm. And then they go to Cuba and get chlamydia and come back with a big <laughs> swollen ankle. And then they get uh, their red eye three years later, which is their iritis. So what does that person have? Right. A rough, a rough year is what they've had, but yeah, to, to your point. Okay. That's, that's excellent. So, and I think, you know, as I'd like to talk about in a moment, some of these therapeutic choices, probably it doesn't really matter what label you give it in that spectrum, because you're going to get that overlap of improvement. Hopefully. I agree. Okay. And in fact, sometimes for, for um, insurance purposes, it's, it's easier if they overlap and they overlap in two different diagnoses, if they have psoriasis and arthritis and they got their knee, ankle after chlamydia, I'm not going to call them reactive arthritis mm -hmm. because there's no indication for treatment uh, for certain uh, biologics. I'm going to call that person psoriatic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis if they fit. Right. So you can choose to use whatever diagnosis is, is more appropriate and more helpful for you. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the therapeutic choices. And I think one of the challenges that many of our colleagues have across the country is access, obviously. So not only, you know, access to dermatology, access to rheumatology, and even between our specialties. And so there are times where I may see a patient have some suspicion about um, a psoriatic arthritis component, but I know it may be a long wait before they're able to see rheumatology. And so I'm making choices um, about their th therapeutics. And so there's places where they don't have access. That's great, but let's assume the dermatologist here has to make a choice. Now, I think this might be a great time to take one of the questions from the residents. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. 
Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Julia Meba from UBC. My question for Dr. Shijania is, what are the preferred biologics for psoriasis slash psoriatic arthritis patients with different associated seronegative spondyloarthropathy manifestations? For example, for psoriasis slash psoriatic arthritis only patients, it seems like IL-17 inhibitors are preferred. But for patients with psoriasis slash psoriatic arthritis who also have severe uveitis, what would be the preferred biologic? Thank you. So what would you start in that patient who you screen positive for? You think they probably have inflammatory arthritis and they definitely have psoriasis and they failed, you know, methotrexate, let's just say. Where are you going biologically? I might try, uh, in, in British Columbia, we need to try another um, uh, traditional DMARD for okay. patients. And and in uh, what we often do is we use leflunamide, which Dr. Au told me that dermatologists don't use or don't know about very Almost much. Almost never. <laughs> yes. So, and uh, it's basically like methotrexate. Uh, um, it works like methotrexate. It has, uh, it's a bit better tolerated and we need to use it before we use a, uh, w- before we get provincial, um, uh, approval for a biologic. Uh, and, uh, so I would use leflunamide, uh, 20 milligrams daily. Okay. It is very teratogenic mm-hmm. and has a very long half-life. So, but, and we also monitor liver and, um, and, uh, uh, similar monitoring to methotrexate, but I would use that first. And if those two failed, and I was going to get a uh, go on a bio, uh, get the patient on a biologic, my first choice is usually an anti TNF mm-hmm. antibody, okay, not a receptor, a soluble receptor, but an antibody, okay, because it either is neutral or helpful for all of the manifestations of these patients. So I think that's. So I think that it it ends up being interesting too. And this is sometimes where I feel like the dermatologists can be helpful depending on the region. So in Nova Scotia, for example, um, a patient with severe psoriasis only has to fail methotrexate. And so then if they do have joint involvement, it's easier for me to access their biologic option than it is for my room colleagues who do have to, again, fail two conventional DMARTs. And so I find myself a lot starting the medication going, okay, which one should I do? And interestingly... From a skin perspective, although we still use some TNF, we tend to lean towards the anti-IL-17s. And so, you know, it, it seems sometimes like it's a bit of push and pull between room and derm going like TNF, no, 17, no, both, you know. And and so if yeah. I were to start a patient on, let's say, ixekizumab for fun, would that be okay from a room perspective? I think it would be okay. I think maybe consider the gut, though. Mm-hmm in terms of exacerbation of underlying inflammatory bowel disease, maybe. Right. Um, that's the only concern I might have. Um, uh, other than that, I would have, I don't think my colleagues would have a problem with that. Now, other than avoiding um, anti-IL-17s in those patients that have gut manifestations, would there be any other uh, special situations from a rheumatologist perspective that sh- we should be aware of, like where you wouldn't use... X, Y, or Z? No. Nope. Not really. Okay. I mean, what I always say is like, if somebody has multiple sclerosis, I don't obviously use an anti-TNF, but that's not specific to to derm or room. No, no, that's not specific to derm and, uh, and especially an anti-soluble uh, uh, receptor for mm-hmm. MS especially, but I guess that uh, also with uh, all anti-TNFs, maybe melanoma history, um, 
But uh, I think that if you wanted to start something, either it's going to work and the patient's going to be very happy or it's not going to work after three months and then we try something else, right? So I don't, there's well, not that a was my, So that was actually my next question for you, which is, you know, from a skin perspective, it's very easy for us to see if something's working. I mean, the skin <laughs> clears up. It's great. It's right there. Um, I find myself a lot of times saying to patients, well, it's going to take longer for your joints. And so what do you think is a reasonable time point to kind of, from a joint perspective, have expectations of that improvement? You just kind of said three months. Is that three to six months? I wouldn't give up uh, at three months. Uh, A rookie mistake in rheumatology is 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 giving up too soon and then cycling through stuff very Mm -hmm. quickly and then it's two years later you've tried everything and you're like oh did we try this first one long enough and going back (laughs) and would you be I'm a big fan of uh, dose optimization in patients that have a partial response is that something you. Yes, I'm same a fan thing. of that too. I'm a fan of dual therapy, mm-hmm. uh, like adding um, a traditional uh, medicine like methotrexate in addition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also I also like to go back and examine the patient. They say, "Oh, my knees are no better," and then I go examine them, and it's their OA or their patellofemoral syndrome right. or something like that. It, I I never regret going back and getting the person undressed and examining them closely. Uh, that tells me whether the disease is active or not, or gives me at least a good, a good assessment. And if I'm not sure, I'll get a point of care ultrasound with one of my colleagues to tell me, hey, there's no inflammation going on here. Um, so uh, the patient is having pain, but it's not to be treated with more aggressive immunosuppressive therapy. Right. And you know what? I, I don't think that that particular point can be stressed enough uh, to the residents that are listening, which is if you think to yourself, this isn't going exactly the way that I'm expecting that, you know, taking that step back, reevaluating, reexamining, um, how do I change my diagnosis? I, I think that's just so important. So thank you for saying that. I just did a talk on second opinions and, uh, and it's just so common that the diagnosis is changed, especially with early disease, early rheumatic diseases, early atypical keep checking because the, and even tell the patients this is the the this is the working diagnosis now but we're going to recheck yeah i think that's real yeah like i said i can't stress that enough that maybe the most important thing the residents take away from this which is doing that uh, i find myself doing that all the time i go wait a second let's let me think about this now, just before I ask you one other question the residents had about therapeutic choices, um, most of the biologics have good evidence for dactylitis and enthesitis. Um, are there any ones that you think might work a little bit better for those particular psoriatic manifestations? I I don't know if the difference, if there's an enough of a difference between the medications or the variability with the patients is more important, but... Um, I think that if uh, adalimumab, for example, uh, has some, I like that for the enthesitis and the and the nail changes, for example. Infliximab, we don't use as much just because of the root, but now there's, I haven't used the sub-Q infliximab that's available yet, but there oh. is a sub-Q version of it. I was not it. aware of that. Yeah, there is, but, but I like the the dose response to the IV for uveitis, for example, okay. and IBD, um, I think the the IV helps. And uh, mm-hmm. so, if we have patients that are very unwell, we and, and the also the ability to dose escalate for infliximab, 
for yeah. some very sick patients. Um, other than that, I, um, uh, and also in British Columbia, we have biosimilars. So my preference is to start with a biosimilar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, you know, less than half the cost. And if, if it's really a toss up, why, why aren't we using the, the uh, cheapest option at the beginning? Exactly. Yeah. Save our system some yeah. dollars. Um, the residents had one other question and you kind of just answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway, other than, oh, sorry, uh, for patients with psoriatic uh, disease who also have severe uveitis, what would be your preferred biologic? Infliximab. Okay. So I so said, you just said it, but I'm going to ask again, because I think it's. Um, and that's for the, yeah. And that's for the, um, the uh, tissue penetration. Okay. Now we've talked a little bit about, you know, um, screening, diagnosis and management of some of the psoriatic arthritis. When should people be checked with psoriasis? Are there things that we haven't talked about that you just, if you knew, listen, I have all the dermatology residents ears that you think they need to know about PSA? Well, I'd say that nail changes make it more likely that there's going to be arthritis if they have uh, uh, nail pits. Um, uh, It seems that scalp gluteal cleft umbilicus involvement is seems to be more uh, with the, or it seems to be associated with more arthritis. Um, I think those are the, uh, those are two things. Okay. That's always some, sometimes, you know, we, we do share patients, but then you just say to yourself, man, if I could just tell everybody this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, you should have a rheumatologist on speed dial on your, you should be able to text one. Uh, same way <laughs> we should be able to text a dermatologist to uh, run questions by them. You know, like I have a couple on my phone, but I try not to abuse them because I'm going to be honest with you. The time that I end up needing them more acutely usually has to do with what I'd like to talk about next, which is. Uh, scleroderma or my bolus lupus patients or those ones, because those are the ones that generally need that really acute um, care. So I try to, I try to save my, uh, (laughs) my favors, if you will. Um, So yeah, I'd like to shift gears maybe a little bit more uh, over to the scleroderma realm. And let's actually take another question from one of the residents right now. Hi Dermalogs, my name is Taraj Khosravi from the University of British Columbia. My question for Dr. Shujania is, how can we differentiate systemic sclerosis from other sclerosing diseases? I think that's a good, I think, yeah, just quick overview about scleroderma and thinking when in the DART clinic, we will see lots of query scleroderma or is this diffuse morphia versus scleroderma? That's sometimes a tough one, right? Uh, yeah. How do you, uh, what's your approach to that? <laughs> now that you mention it, that is a tough one. That's a tough one. I think, well, scleroderma should start with the fingers and should have almost always start with Raynaud's phenomenon, real severe triphasic Raynaud's, new Raynaud's. Okay. And if the patient says, oh, I've had Raynaud's since I was 16 and they're now 30, I'm like, well, that's not. But if they say, my fingers are now changing color in the cold and I can't even ski anymore. And this is happening for two years or five years. Uh, and, um, they have digital tuft pits. I am a big believer in looking at the, uh, capillary loops, Mm -hmm. uh, with the dermatoscope. If they have dilated capillary loops and Raynaud's, even if they don't have sclerodactyly yet, I I'm starting to get very concerned about scleroderma or a friend of scleroderma. Do you remember I told you about the four uh, circles in the Venn diagram? Correct. If you yes. think about those same four circles 
Think about these four diagnoses and put them in there. Lupus, systemic lupus erythematosus is one. Dermatomyositis is in the other circle. Systemic sclerosis is in the third circle. And in the fourth circle, primary Sjogren's syndrome. Uh Oh, Okay. okay. And you can overlap with all of those conditions. So, so th- that's how we approach these systemic autoimmune rheumatic diseases, those four circles with overlaps. And then if you think they're in one of those circles, but they don't fit perfectly, that might be undifferentiated connective tissue disease. Mm-hmm. And then there's that other diagnosis called mixed connective tissue disease, which is high RNP, inflammatory arthritis, Often with bad lung disease yeah. uh, and uh, and myositis, so it's a it's a mixture, but very high RNP. Those are sick patients. Right. So the the resident mistake is to equate undifferentiated connective tissue disease, which is like I don't know what this is going to be, but it's going to be one of these, and then mixed connective tissue disease, which is very severe uh, multi organ dysfunction with a high RNP. Okay, so those are very different entities and will take a different trajectory over time. Exactly. And you can have over, yes. And then out of these four circles, you could have overlaps as well. But going back to the question of scleroderma, there's two types, as we all remembered, uh, limited and uh, diffuse systemic sclerosis. Uh, the Limited is, is the more common. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and really, both of them should start with Raynaud's. And if the patient doesn't have Raynaud's, I don't think it's going to be systemic sclerosis. If the patient doesn't have a high positive ANA, I don't think it's going to be systemic sclerosis. So that so to get back to the question about diffuse um, morphia, I learned from Dr. Ao that it, it is, so we just saw one last week, and uh, and this patient did not have sclerodactyly. Okay. This patient did not have um, uh, uh, Raynaud's. This patient did not have nail-fold cap loops, and it was patchy morphia in right. a whole bunch of places on the body. And of course, we're going to treat that with methotrexate. And uh, we reassured the referring doctor that it's not uh, systemic sclerosis. Now, thinking about systemic sclerosis, and you see that person and, and you, you know, for, for my um, rudimentary uh, memory, I'll kind of be like, okay, I'm going to refer them and I'm going to do this blood work. And then I, I order some PFTs because um, I'm getting really fancy there. But in terms of like when to step in for management, this is always another problem. I've sent sometimes the patient that I think has early um, manifestations with progressive sclerodactyly, and then I get back up, okay, we'll see them in two years. And I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Um, that feels like maybe sooner would be better. Um, do you think it matters in those cases to intervene early? And if so, what do you tend to start with? I, I If it's limited, limited scleroderma is common. We don't have a lot of intervention we can do for them. Uh, mm-hmm. We have to make sure that they do not have pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. So we do a baseline echo. We do um, uh, baseline PFTs for both groups. Mm-hmm. And um, we often can hang out and wait and not treat the limited scleroderma okay. most of the time. If it's diffuse scleroderma early on and you've got poor prognostic signs, lots of truncal involvement, rapid onset, um, uh, well, definitely you do PFTs and, and CT chest. And and really what we're trying to do is, is this person someone we might send early for stem cell transplant? Right. 
that's one question we have. And we have a, we, I don't make those decisions. I, I, I we have a very good scleroderma clinic here that we get lots of great help from. Okay. Um, is this patient going to have early or severe interstitial lung involvement? And in that case, you know, they might consider cyclophosphamide or MMF or, uh, we try to avoid prednisone in those patients because of scleroderma renal crisis, which we right. had a case of recently. Um, so if I, I think that as a dermatologist, if you think this is going to be scleroderma uh, or systemic sclerosis, rheumatology referral, but I would say it would be urgent, not two years, if you have truncal involvement or uh, involvement that's more than something okay. that would be limited. So I guess that's also important that if we're making the referral, that we are very clear about whether it does seem to be more limited versus diffuse. And that will obviously allow you to triage better um, that's right. and know what's supposed to happen. Now, in, in the old days, um, anti-centromere was more limited and anti-SCL70 was more diffuse, but it, there's some overlap there now. So we don't, uh, it's not uh, final. Okay. And uh, thinking about one of the manifestations that we are often asked to see and is exceedingly challenging and stubborn to treat would be calcinosis cutis. So from your center, are there any, (laughs) help me, do you have any tips or things that you've seen be effective? Because sadly, I feel like that ends up being a huge problem for the patient and it's extremely painful, but treating it is just nearly impossible. We don't have uh, a great treatment for calcinosis cutis. I have a sense that good treatment of the underlying disease, be it dermatomyositis or systemic sclerosis, helps prevent it. Mm -hmm. Like uh, kids with severe dermatomyositis have that sheet-like calcification uh, later on and and, uh, we see lots of calcinosis. We tried sodium thiosulfate injections for a bit. It was too painful and didn't work very well. Surgical removal does work if they're in, in places that are very uh, irritating in particular or in the thumbs or pulp spaces where people have to use. So we have we send them to the hand surgeons for surgical removal. No one's that happy about it. Right. Um, it does help, but it they come back. So um, there's no, you know, bisphosphonates and, uh, and, uh, you know, everyone's tried so many things and, uh, uh, we don't have the answer yet. I was just going to say, and I, I've recently tried a bit of, um, topical and oral sodium thiosulfate. So I'll have to see if that's effective. I, I don't have high hopes, but um... we tried to- we tried topical, um, uh, at a compounding pharmacy. We have not tried oral. Okay. I've tried to work for calciphylaxis, so I'm trying to apply it to the same concept and I'm not totally sure if it'll work. But we'll We've see. seen IV for calciphylaxis, but it's like $7,000 and uh, it comes yeah, out of a different You know budget. what's interesting is we've compounded the oral version. And it's very cheap. Um, very cheap, but I'm just, this is nothing to do with the podcast, but this is why I was bringing it up because this is my most challenging of calcinosis cutis. So that was more a personal question. The residents didn't actually ask about that because they haven't had to deal with that yet. (laughs) That's me. Oh God. Okay. So yeah, I think that's obviously a challenge for, for both, uh, both us and, and you guys for that. Now, speaking of dermatomyositis, um, you know, I talked a little bit about this with, uh, with Jan, but one of the residents uh, did have this specific question. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Anastasia Muntianu, and I'm a resident at the University of Toronto. 
My question for Dr. Shojania is, what is the difference in managing dermatomyositis for patients that have skin-only disease versus if they have involvement of muscle as well? Thank you. I, I think that dermatomyositis diagnosis and treatment is changing rapidly over the past five years. Um, we we have, um, if you think of it, it's it's really a clinical, pathological, and serologic diagnosis now, and even radiologic. Um, is it, because we have to try to figure out, is this amyopathic, clinically amyopathic dermatomyositis, CADM? Is this hypomyopathic, which means a little bit of muscle involvement, you only can tell by careful exam and imaging? Is this post-myopathic, like often at the beginning, it's bad skin, bad muscle. The muscle disease is treated, but the skin becomes persistent problem, itchy, red, uh, involvement, and very symptomatic. So we call that post-myopathic dermatomyositis. Um, I think those are that. I think that's a good way to to uh, differentiate the um, trajectory of this condition. And how often, so what happens a lot of the time in dermatology is people will present with a, with the cutaneous manifestations of dermatomyositis, which, you know, are relatively easy to recognize and initially seem to have no muscle involvement. Um, but I'm wondering one, what are the most appropriate and up-to-date tests? Cause I don't think muscle biopsy is number one anymore, um, for us to sort of order. And then two, how long or how often is it worth checking for that muscle involvement? I mean, I've had patients who, you know, a year later, I'm, I'm getting them to, you know, raise your arms, don't let me push them down. And then boom, they ha- they're a three out of five. And that wasn't the case before. And so, yeah, I just asked you two questions in a big spiel. Did that make sense? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I think, um, I, I think if they have cutaneous involvement, I would, I think co-managing is better okay. uh, because, you know, you need to do the muscle testing. You need to check the CKs. That's also another clue if the CK is starting to climb or um, if they're weak on, on muscle uh, testing or they often will say they're weak or if they have swallowing problems or aspiration, uh, shortness of breath. Um I think uh, they need to be followed for sure. And mm-hmm. the muscle involvement or skin involvement can come later. And one or one or both can become the big problem. It's often the skin is the big problem. And yeah. the muscles have burnt out. There's there's fibrosis. They're weak, but it's not actively inflamed. And the, do you the think... diagnosis... Go ahead. No, no, please. Yeah, finish your sentence. I was going to say the diagnosis often... Uh, if you think uh, the best way to... F- Diagnosis of muscle involvement is clinical, but also MRI of the proximal mm-hmm. muscles, looking for edema, and guided muscle biopsy based on the MRI or EMG. And it depends on what you have in your um, uh, availability in your neighborhood. Okay. And do you test? So my I, my father, this is a you know bias here. My dad's a retired neurologist, and so um, I feel like I learned how to do a neuro exam when I was. Um, 
a small child, but I always do those sort of proximal muscle tests. So, you know, arms up, lifting their leg up. Can they crouch down, stand up? Are there other muscle groups that you tend to focus on or is it mainly just those proximal big muscles? Those are great. And I also do uh, neck flexion. You should Ah. not. I put my palm on their forehead and say, don't let me push your head back. It's kind of scary. Uh, (laughs) And uh, you should not be able to overcome someone's neck flexion. Right, right. Uh, and and not, don't don't push too hard if they don't do push that. too hard, especially <laughs> if it's a, a elderly frail person. Yeah, but arm abduction, knee flex, uh, hip flexion, and uh, and uh, neck flexion. Okay, okay, um, yeah, and I think to your point, typically speaking, patients with dermatomyositis, their muscles improve quickly. It's their skin that does tend to become a chronic problem and uh, and and doesn't respond nearly as well to many of the conventional immunosuppressives that we use. Um, unfortunately. So, okay. We are using now Jack inhibitors off label oh, for the skin. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Like pan jacks or the selective jacks or both? Well, right now we use what's available here, which is tofacitinib right. for skin involvement of, um, of, uh, dermatomyositis. So interesting. we have, but it is off label and, uh, there are some very nice case series showing benefit. We are uh, in dermatology. We're getting into the jack game here with um, some of our targeted jacks or uh, sorry, selective jacks for atopic dermatitis. But you guys have a significant amount of experience um, using jacks for many years. So although this isn't a question the residents brought up, I actually think it's apropos that we talk about it. So with your experience in, in jacks, how scared should we be as dermatologists about some of the potential risks that seem to go along with some of the jacks? And specifically, I mean, uh, thromboembolic or sorry, thromboembolic disease and potential malignancy risk. I, I think it's a concern and, um, cardiovascular thromboembolic, um, and malignancy are the, are the, are the issues increased risk of infection as well. Mm-hmm. On the plus side, they are, they have a short half-life. Right. Um, uh, on the plus side, they're usually faster acting. So I, uh, I, I do like them, but you know, we have to check their liver. We have to check their lipids. We have to uh, check their, uh, uh, blood counts. Uh, so, um, and just one other question for someone that's used a lot more jacks than, than we have, um, pre-screening thinking about cardiac or thrombo, um, thromboembolic events, like how much screening. Do you just tend to do the simple questions like, have you ever had a blood clot or heart attack? Yes. Okay. So yeah. you're not getting into the massive, you know, factor five Leiden mutation checks for everybody no. or anything like that. Okay. No family history of uh, thromboembolic disease, personal history of thromboembolic disease, cardiovascular risks, yeah, cancer risks, uh, age appropriate screening. Okay. Um, thank you. Now, I want to cover just one last area before I um, have used up all of your time, uh, and that's just to kind of touch back around on the lupus piece. And so the residents had one question, which is, when we're seeing a patient in dermatology clinic with variants of chronic cutaneous lupus, how often should we be screening for the development of systemic involvement? And I feel like I'd like to add to that to saying how often and in what fashion should we be screening? And so this might be a nice time to talk about clinical and then the, the, the magical ANA. <laughs> I think that it's perfect. You know, there's lots of dumb reasons to get an ANA, but having someone with cut- chronic cutaneous lupus is a good reason to get an ANA. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a good reason. And if the ANA is normal, negative, mm -hmm. then the likelihood of this chronic cutaneous lupus becoming systemic is very, very low. Right. If the ANA is positive, the likelihood is still low. But then you look at other things too, uh, the other autoantibodies. I like to look at the uh, CBC. I like to look for lymphopenia is a little clue for me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, neutropenia. Um, I like to look for, um, uh, I, I think it's good to screen for urinalysis and kidney function. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I like to check the extractable nuclear antigens as well. If the ANA is positive, but if the ANA is negative, then I, I, I would stop there. And do you, I guess in the absence of any significant change clinically, then it sounds like you probably wouldn't just repeat those things on any kind of regular basis. Um, yeah, unless there was some new clinical uh, symptoms, I I would not repeat them, unless maybe the cutaneous symptoms are getting worse or, you're, okay. or there's something unusual about that. But I would not in our in our province, we're not allowed to do it more than uh, once a year, which is quite reasonable. Oh. And um, and uh, I think uh, repeating it in a few years is reasonable. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you. Now, before I let you go, I just had one more question that I'm not sure if we need to add back in or not, but I wanted, the one thing I forgot to ask you about earlier was the role of things like CRP and ESR as it pertains to some of these um, conditions. And so do you think there's any use for doing a CRP ESR in say the psoriasis patient or in the uh, scleroderma patient, or are these just going to be not helpful clinically? I think in psoriasis let me say it's helpful in rheumatoid arthritis, giant cell arteritis, mm -hmm. polymyel dramatica. It's often very helpful in following disease activity, but much less so in psoriatic arthritis. Okay. It can be modestly elevated in the um, uh, patient with psoriasis who has some obesity or metabolic syndrome, and they could have a CRP of 6 to 12. Uh, and um, what do you do with that? Is it probably not inflammatory, uh, especially if it just hovers there? Right. Um, so not very helpful with psoriatic arthritis. And then the other part was, was I just wondered point? about some of the other things we discussed too, like scleroderma or, but they're really, I would never really check that there. So I, I, I think sometimes we do as part of our regular follow-up, but I don't find it that very useful. Okay. I think a scleroderma, um, uh, kidney function is more important to follow up and count blood counts uh, less than CRP. And by the way, I think the the value of the ESR is very low now. Okay. Um, it's uh, uh, CRP is better and now cheaper in mm -hmm. most places. So I think if you're going to choose one of those, I would choose a CRP rather than the ESR. Yeah, the uh, they've actually taken the ESR off of our standard blood work requisition and only CRP is included. And then if you want high sensitivity CRP, you have to request that one specifically. Got it. Okay. Well, listen, I wanted to thank you so, so much um, for joining me and being so kind with your time and sharing all of these great clinical tips. And I in particular love these mental Venn diagrams that I'm now going to have seeing these patients with overlaps. So thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It was fun. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps people find us. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. If you want to hear more great CDA podcasts, please check out the JCMS author interviews with Dr. Kirk Barber in conversation with the authors of his pick of articles in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us.
Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. 